Thank you very much for joining. You have probably heard about cultural Marxism and its supposedly destructive influence in the West. You will have probably also heard about the Frankfurt School, which supposedly is behind this cultural decline, is behind cultural Marxism. And it was this group of intellectuals who we are told had this plan on undermining Western capitalism and the Western way of life. And depending on who you listen to, you might hear more and more conspiracy theories having to do with the ethnic origins of these people or who knows what else. So what we will do today is we will discuss what are the ideas of the Frankfurt School and where does reality start and where does the myth and the conspiracy theory end. And we will also draw some interesting conclusions about what is more powerful, a plan and a conspiracy or the power of bad ideas. Ergo, the title of today's show. Now, this is this lecture is uh, this sorry this solo episode is based very loosely on what will be the first lecture on my new course in the Ayn Rand University, what used to be the Objectivist Academic Center, and my module, The Road to Critical Race Theory. So the first lecture of that is going to be Frankfurt School, and today we start with Frankfurt School. So first of all, why Frankfurt School? What do we mean by this school? So we mean a group of intellectuals who we could call a school because A, they had personal and often institutional ties. So they began by the, I can't remember the German term, but a center for social research that was based in Frankfurt in the 20s. Then due to the rise of Nazism, they had to relocate. Some of them went to initially Europe. Most of them reconvened in the United States. And mostly it's people such as Adorno, Horkheimer, Marcuse, and others who are less uh, related, less on the core of the school, but somehow mostly intellectually or personally related, people like Walter uh, Benjamin or people like Eric Fromm. You probably know him if you've read Nathaniel Branden's article, Alienation in, uh, I think, in the virtue of selfness or in capital, I don't remember which of the two. And more recently, Jürgen Habermas. So these names are associated with the school. And to begin with, why cultural and why Marxism? Were cultural because their focus was less on politics. So these people were not revolutionaries in the same way than a Lenin or a Trotsky was. Actually, most of these people were people of a bourgeois background, which, of course, doesn't mean anything. Lenin was also of a bourgeois background. But they were the academic type. They were the intellectuals. You wouldn't find them in barricades. You wouldn't find them being party agitators. Actually, almost none of, none of them actually was part of a communist party, particularly after the 20s. So, and why Marxism? First of all, let me say, by the way, that cultural Marxism, I don't use the term, but I'm trying to explain why most people have them in their mind as cultural Marxism. And why Marxism? Because they begin their analysis by accepting some of the main Marxian themes. At the same time, though, and this is why you should be very skeptical when you hear people using the term cultural Marxism, the Frankfurt School is a major deviation from 
Orthodox Marxism. So let's put it this way. If you don't like the Frankfurt School, if you think that the Frankfurt School is destructive in terms of its ideas and it's a bad moment in history, let me tell you that the average Marxist-Leninist hates the Frankfurt School more than you do. Because again, it was a very major revision of Marx and it was a major revision of Marxism. Now, something else that you will notice in Frankfurt School, before we even jump in the details, is it has a very gloomy worldview. And it, the work of the school from the 1920s going on to the 1960s, it's a constant struggle and a constant battle trying to understand and explain tragedies. Now, think about the historical context for a moment. We are in the 90s, 20s. In the early 1920s in Germany. So a country that has come out of a destructive world war, defeated, and particularly if you're a Marxist, you will have seen the 1919 revolution in Germany by the Spartacists led by Rosa Luxemburg and by Karl Liebknecht, and you will have seen that revolution being defeated. So you ask yourself to, you ask yourself a question. What happened to the radicalism of the working class? The working class was supposed to be the agent of history, was supposed to be the agent of revolution. Instead, we saw the working class marching enthusiastically to the slaughterhouse of the First World War. And we saw the working class turning its back to the revolution in Germany in 1919, part of it. So as a Marxist, you are in a very difficult position. So you start rethinking, the members of the school start rethinking, could it be that the view that we had about the working class is wrong? Could it be that the view that we had about the working class as this agent of history might be overestimated? Could it be that actually the working class is brainwashed by capitalism or by the dominant ideology? And again, this is already a big, big, big step challenging Orthodox Marxism. And I would say in these terms, Frankfurt School, they were very intellectually, in a way, brave because it was not easy to come from a Marxian background and support these positions when they supported them. Then we have the tragedy of Nazism. And again, because almost every founding member, Horkheimer, Cadorno, of the group were of Jewish origin, However, I have to say, there were none of them took their Jewishness or whatever seriously. So we were non-practicing Jews. Of course, <laughs> this hasn't stopped conspiracy theorists from saying that Frankfurt School is a Jewish conspiracy. Anyway, so they find themselves running for their lives. Some of them literally, Walter Benjamin is actually trying to escape uh, and he dies in the Italian, in the in the. In, in, in the French-Italian borders. Actually, he takes his life out of despair. So now they have to ask the question, to answer the question, why did Hitler take power? How did fascism gain power in Europe? And this is when they also start turning to psychology, which again was almost unheard of for a Marxist. Marxism was about you explain history and you explain society based on the structures and the mode of production based on the economy, to put it in, in vulgar, similar terms. So now we see some of them turning to, particularly from 
turning to psychology, turning to Freudian notions. And Adorno, for example, says that maybe a good defense towards the rising authoritarianism which and the brainwashing of the masses by the state is the family. So how funny, right? Many conservatives today will tell you that, well, the culture wars began with Frankfurt School and Frankfurt School wanted to destroy the family. And here you have Adorno actually saying that, no, the family is, is a barrier to authoritarianism because as a unit, it is a better unit for socialization than the omnipotent state. So this is, so this is then the next big thing that needs to be explained. And then we have, after the, the end of the Second World War, we have the nuclear threat and we have the shocking for many experience of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And now the Frankfurt School asks itself this question. Could it be? So they find now themselves in a peaceful world, but with the threat of war lurking like a Damocles sword. And they ask themselves one question. And that question is, could it be that the intellectual process that led to the Holocaust, Nazism, and the nuclear threat, could it be that this is the same principles, the same mindset, the same ideas that actually have led to the prosperity that we see today? Put in other words, could it be that the Enlightenment and all these ideas of modernity, of technology and progress, maybe these things haven't only given us the refrigerator and the car, they might have also given us the Holocaust and the concentration camp and the Gulag. And this is, again, a, a very, very big pessimism in Frankfurt School. So, and you see, for example, again, Adorno and, and Horkheimer uh, being very skeptical about jazz, like jazz, uh, and, and that this the art is now being uh, uh, com commodified, commercialized. They, he, he even talks... He, he, he even talks about Donald Duck that, uh, you know, the, don't, be, don't be carried away by cartoons because Donald Duck, in a way, symbolizes the loser who is the worker under capitalism. And by finding Donald Duck funny, you actually accept your condition as the eternal loser that you are under capitalism. So, in a way, under the Frankfurt School worldview, we cannot have good things in, uh, we cannot have good things in life. Now, let me enter a bit more into some of the details of the, of the ideas. So what is then the philosophy? What is then the legacy of the Frankfurt School? So if we have to find one thing that brings together people who have different disciplines, so other, some of them are more into art like, or music like Adorno, or psych, uh, psychology like Eric Fromm, or philosophy slash politics like Marcuse, what's the thing that unites them? And this is the legacy of critical theory. So quite often you will hear these terms together, critical theory, cultural Marxism, uh, Frankfurt School. Culture, uh, critical theory is a legitimate term because they also used these terms. So what is critical theory? First of all, why is critical? critical towards society itself in its eternity, on the one hand, and on the other hand, critical of every, of every philosophical and ideological dogma of that time, including Marxism. So critical theory basically says we will question everything. 
And by questioning everything, we will bring change. So theory also becomes a praxis. In Greek, theory and praxis are supposedly opposites. But under the dialectic thinking that the, Frank that the Frankfurt School takes from Marx and Hegel supports, theory and praxis can become one. And why theory? Because they believe, again, that theory has the potential to rise above the false consciousness that capitalism puts us under. Now, if you ask how does this going to happen, sorry, you're not going to get an answer. But that's, that's the big idea. So in a way, think about it this way. Critical theory for the Frankfurt School, to use a, another Marxist analogy, is like this midwife that helps deliver the newborn baby. And what is this newborn baby going to be? the new post-capitalist society where alienation, again, Marxian term, is going to be overcome. Put in simple terms, under capitalism, you are, according to the Frankfurtians, alienated, unhappy. You have this libidinal energy, as Marcuse would put it, again, Freudian terms. You have this libidinal energy, but it's suppressed. Everything that be, can be really creative under capitalism is suppressed. But through theory, we are going to find ourselves in this other society where this libidinal surplus is going to express itself in productivity. How is this going to happen? Somehow. We never find out. And uh, even very sympathetic readings of Frankfurt School does not answer this question, the question of... So th there are some questions that keep coming up. And the question is, what exactly do they mean? And then, okay, if we manage to understand what they mean, how do we get there? So most of, particularly Adorno, his books are difficult to penetrate, very boring, in my view. And also, it's, it never becomes clear exactly what they want, exactly what they present. But one thing is clear, that their philosophy is mostly a philosophy of negation. A philosophy that says that philosophy is not powerful, that philosophy is not potent. Do you remember that quote by Simon Pritchett, the philosopher, quote, philosopher, the supposed successor of uh, Hugh Axton in, in the university when Hugh Axton uh, retires, who says that the, the goal of philosophy is to prove that we know, to show you that we know nothing or something like that, or that thinking is impossible or something like that. I wonder if Ayn Rand wrote this having in their minds what Adorno and Hockheimer wrote. Probably she hasn't because this was probably before them. But what they say is that, what Adorno and Horkheimer say is that philosophy is incapable of finding the absolutes, the principles. It's incapable of finding this primal essence, the core law of all things. So philosophy in a way is A, impotent, but also in some ways dangerous. Why dangerous? Because philosophy has this obsession with order, with systems, with clear rules. And then uh, the Frankfurters make this huge leap and clear rules and order lead to totalitarianism. So this is in a way an attack on philosophy. It says that philosophy and the rigid systems of people who think they have certainty is one step Sorry, it's a tool in the hands of totalitarians. Now, they hope that there can be a quote, a good philosophy, which they call theory, but how we get there, we don't know.
We know, though, that we cannot go there based on facts and reason. So the second big no, the second big negation that the Frankfurt School pushes forward is a negation of the idea of reasons and facts as guides to reality. Now, again, they will say, look, we attack reason because we want to support, to support real reason, which they don't tell us what it is. So here is what very simple, in simple words, what they mean. So there is some Platonism, in, in my understanding, and my, I'm in no way an expert. There's some Platonism in the Frankfurt School method. So they say there are things that we see, but what we see is things as they appear. Things as they appear, not as they are, as they appear. Therefore, a philosophy based on facts doesn't tell you, doesn't give you access to the truth. It gives you access to the facts, but the facts as they appear. And how do you get access beyond that? We never find out. But what they tell us is that this is not to be trusted. And again, not only it needs, it cannot be trusted, but also accepting the facts as they are makes you a tool of the status quo, makes you a tool of the powers that be. In other ways, and I think they use almost these terms. A is A is an epistemological equivalent of something like totalitarianism. So the A is A means that things is exactly as they are. So there is order. Therefore, there is rigidity. Therefore, there is no way out. In a way, we are trapped in facts. Tra facts are a prison. And, and, for the and for the critical theorists, this is suffocating. This is something that they cannot cope with. This is something that makes them anxious. And this is something that makes them nervous. It's something that needs to be overcome. How? Nobody knows. And before I go to their next big criticism, which is the the, their next negation, which is the enlightenment, let me pause for a second and see where we are. Thank you very much, Zombie Hunter, for your contribution and your uh, generous comment. So, and I see also a contribution for Bonnie. Thank you very much. I appreciate, I appreciate all this. Now, what else do the Frankfurters turn against? They turn against the Enlightenment. And trying to give them a very sympathetic reading, what they say is, no, we want to save the Enlightenment, the true Enlightenment. But actually, what they do is, in a way, they attack what the Enlightenment actually stands for. So one of the most famous books, and uh, a book that uh, is, is the core reading for the students of the Franco School, is a book called Dialectic of Enlightenment, again, by Marcuse and Horkheimer. Now, why dialectic? Dialectic because Marcuse and Horkheimer say, uh, sorry, Adorno and Horkheimer say that the same factors that have led to the conquest of nature, which is, so they take Francis Bacon, uh, nature in order to command and has to be obeyed. So this very principle has led not only to the conquest of nation, of nature, but also to the conquest of man has also led to a barbarism that is unthought of 
a barbarism that is never that has never been possible before. Again, they have in mind, for example, the Holocaust. Uh, I think it was Adorno who said that poetry is impossible after the Holocaust. So the Holocaust is an experience that haunts them. So their critique to the Enlightenment, you could say, again, trying to provide a sympathetic reading, that it's their reaction trying to find the answer to the question, why? So, and again, they find this urge to know, this urge to categorize, this, this, this term, this urge to, to control. They say that this not only applies to nature, but this has destroyed the essence of, of everything around us. It has destroyed our relationship with other people, our relationship to art, our relationship to, to music. Why? Because we deal each and every of these things, including other people, as a means, as a means and not as ends in themselves. Now, what exactly this means? Again, if you have the intellectual stomach, go read Dialectic of the Enlightenment. My view is you're not going to find a very particular answer to, to that. And the last thing that they say this big no to, and by the way, that's why, that's why uh, Adorno, uh, one of his famous books is uh, Negative Dialectics, which basically means that philosophy can tell you what to tell no to. That's as good as it gets. So you cannot get knowledge of the real facts. You only get knowledge of the facts as they appear. But philosophy can be this negation, this questioning, this constant questioning. So the last thing then that, uh, and the thing that I want to spend a bit more time is the negation of the modern industrial society. And here we come to the figure of the Frankfurt School, which I think deserves the most blame to say, or the, so if this was a film, this was the art, the arts villain would be Marcuse. Because Marcuse hasn't got what the rest of the Frankfurt School people have, which is they kind of understand that their thoughts and their analysis doesn't lead them anywhere. So they stop one step before providing solutions. They stop one step before they, pro they, they have to explain how we will go past this alienating supposedly society to this other society. Marcuse doesn't do that. Marcuse takes the step and in a way brings these ideas to their logical conclusions. And Marcuse does this mostly in his book, One Dimensional Man. So why one dimensional? So he says we live in a one dimensional society of one dimensional men. What is this one dimension? It's the one dimension of acceptance, of taking the system for what it is. And what is completely missing is the second dimension, which is questioning the system. And he says that even with art, we see the same thing, that art used to have this being outside of the norms, outside of society, in a way. Art was a criticism of society, but now within capitalism and within the totalitarian society, by which he means capitalism and socialism as it was in that time in Soviet Union, art does not play this role. And then you ask him, what exactly do you mean? So how was, for example, Bach or Mozart different? And then he would, they would say something, but again, you never get the real answer. What do you mean that 
you cannot criticize society. Isn't this what you do throughout your whole career in your very well position at the university? But again, we don't get this answer. So Marcuse says, a society based on facts, again, facts as they appear to be, and based on instrumental reason, which is not a good thing, instrumental reason, of course, we never find out what is the difference between the good reason and instrumental reason. So you have to guess it, although Marcuse gives a hint, and I'll tell you about this in a second. So he says that the society based on facts and instrumental reason is oppressive, and it's anti-life, to put it in more of our own terms. And also, it is eager to perpetuate itself, which means it's internal, it adopts, and it manages to, to neutralize even its critics. So on the one hand, you have capitalism, and the other half, you have happiness and eros. He used this eros and thanatos, kind of these Freudian categories, right? And Marcuse says, it's either or. You cannot have true happiness in capitalism. So what he wants, he says, we need to find ourselves in a society of liberated libidinal energy. Liberated libidinal energy. What does this mean? Does this mean that we're going to jump around and have like sex all day? He says, no, not exactly this. So there's going to be eros in your work. There's going to be libidinal energy in your interaction with other people. And you ask, uh, what does that exactly mean? What do you mean I'm going to have libidinal energy in my work? So there are many people who enjoy their work today. But again, you don't get answers. Marcuse is not here to give you particular answers. So how do, how do we know what this looks like, what these true facts look like, and how this passage to this new society looks like? And here you get the magic words. Intuition. Intuition? But these people are supposed to be defenders of reason. So Marcuse says that, look, your mind is a bit messed up because of your alienation and your false consciousness. So what you have to do is you have to really intentively meditate and think about things. And this is how you see things for how they really are. How exactly we do that, again, we don't find out, but we know that he managed to do so because he speaks with authority on what needs to be done. Now, how do we get to this society of liberated libidinal energy? This is where the mask slips, and this is where we see the very dark side of where these ideas, uh, of where these ideas uh, lead us. Let me make another stop. Uh, <clears throat> So Marilyn asked, is there a reading list available for the course? Yes, there is a reading list available. I don't think it has been, it's open to the public yet, but uh, the organizer, the administrators of the Anran University have this list. Uh, also, I have this list, obviously, because I created it. So uh, get in contact or get in contact through Razi and I can give you the list. Soon it's going to be also available in public. Thank you for your contribution, Marilyn. And Eric, thank you also for your contribution. It looks like the Frankfurt School moved from Marxism to the philosophy of Rousseau, that civilization and reason are destructive to the good, natural, primitive nature of man. Enric, it's difficult indeed not to, not to draw this conclusion that there is something very Rousseau-like, particularly in Marcuse. And uh, so I, I totally agree with you. And we will see at the end what is behind 
the Frankfurt School in terms of where do these ideas come from? But before, let's see, as I promised, the dark side, which is Marcuse daring to tell you what exactly this other society of happiness beyond capitalism will look like. So, again, in one-dimensional man, but not only there, we find that there is one category of people that still can give us hope for change. Now, the vast majority of the masses, there is no hope for change. And Marcuse has this, this line in One Dimensional Man that says that because these people are more well-off, their consciousness is now completely compromised. So he has a line which says, if the, if the worker and his boss, if they drive the same car, or if their wives uh, read the same magazines, this means that uh, there is no hope. There is no revolutionary potential for these people. So notice here the disdain, the elitist disdain for the masses, right? And the disdain for the success of capitalism. So here's another big revision of Marxism. Capitalism does not bring to immiseration. Capitalism brings to alienation because it gives you too much. So Marcuse says, forget these people. Forget the working class, forget. The only hope, he says, is comes from people who have not had access to these alienating ideas, to these alienating, quote, facts as they appear. And who are these people? University students. He has more in mind like the hippies, uh, this, this kind of, uh, of university students. And also the Lubin proletariat, to put it in these terms, uh, what in other sociologists call the, quote, underclass. But in Marxist terms, we'd say the Lumpen proletariat, another major revision of Marxism. For Marx, the Lumpen proletariat are mostly part of the enemy, like they don't have class consciousness. But for Marcuse, they, there's a hope. And also there's a hope in the farmers and uh, the masses in the developing world. So put differently, if you haven't achieved anything in, the, in, in an industrial society, you will be the new intellectual, you will be the vanguard. If you are a hungry urgent, let's say, or to put in, if you are, if you are, a, if you're someone who has achieved a lot, if you, if you're someone who has, you've put your mind and you have discovered things, then uh, you are not to be trusted. The Frankfurtians have also this dichotomy between science and technology. Pure science is good, technology, but science under capitalism and technology, no good. So if you have achieved stuff, you're not good. But if you haven't achieved anything, then you are the vanguard. And not only you are the vanguard, you have a blank, a card blanche, a white check to rule and use force against those who have achieved. Why? Because you are outside of this alienating system. So if you are a doped hippie, if you are a farmer who you, you haven't had any access to electricity, or if you are part of the underclass in a, in, in a ghetto, not because you know, life happens, but if you know, consistently you are there, then for Marcuse, you are the vanguard. Again, if you ask why, because is the answer. So, and then what happens then? Then what is happening is that this vanguard has the right to use force. Now, Marcuse would say violence is bad, except when violence is used 
for the aim of liberation. And how do we know when the aim of liberation is good? So, for example, why is it that when Nazi thugs use violence is bad, but when the vanguard from the ghettos or the hippies is good? Well, it's because Marcuse says so. His intuition says so. So we cannot argue with Marcuse's intuition. So violence is justified if it's for a good cause. And then he also says that this violence also brings out this in a way, this opens this path for this libidinal energy. So for me, when I think about the Marcusian liberator, what comes to my mind is Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now, particularly this scene where he has his, his face, uh, uh, he, his face in, the, in the colors of war, and he's in this ecstasy of eros and power. That's what comes to my mind when I read Marcuse. It's this person who is completely liberated from the false consciousness of industrial civilization, and his libidinal energy is out. Of course, what does he do? He kills, he chops heads, but again, you know, who is to, how, how do we know that this is bad? How can we know that this is not the way to go through life? So then Marcuse tells us that in this new society of libidinal energy, we're also going to have tolerance, but true tolerance. And what is true tolerance? True tolerance is intolerance towards the ones that are not tolerant. If you are confused, this means if you are against this Marcusean dream, you are intolerant. Therefore, you don't deserve neither tolerance nor freedom. If you think that I'm exaggerating, go and read his essay, Repressive Tolerance, where he specifically says, specifically like in quotation, although I haven't got it in front of me, I should, he says, there should be in a way no tolerance and no freedom of speech for the right or for people who oppose the welfare state or the expansion of rights. And you could say, oh, so you're an authoritarian wannabe dictator. No, 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 he says. I can explain, says Marcuse. And here's how he explains. He says, look, what is free speech for? Free speech, says Marcuse, is about discovering the truth. Therefore, people who do not speak the truth don't engage in free speech. Therefore, we have a right to take away their free speech. This is, this is the intellectual who is the big inspiration of you know, every, okay, not every, but many progressives since the 60s. This is, this is Marcuse. So a free society is a society where you will not be free to make the wrong choices, to be a capitalist or, or to be a right winger and all that stuff. So this is, this is Marcuse's utopia. And again, these ideas, the path to this Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now figure comes through the main ideas of the Frankfurt School. We cannot know. We have to rely basically on intuition. We do know, though, that the world out there is alienating. We do know that industrial achievement is alienating. We do know that consumerism is a false need. So Marcuse keeps talking about false needs. He tells you that your needs are false. How does he know? He's Marcuse, intuition. So this is so this is uh, so this is his idea on how to escape this, as he calls it, totalitarian society. By the way, when he talks about totalitarian society, he means both the USSR and the United States. So for Marcuse, 
gulags and concentration camps and people breaking on your door with guns at the early hours in the morning with the fact that you have a nice fridge and now you want a second car, these are parts of the same totalitarianism. So he doesn't see the difference and there is basically no difference for Marcuse. So this is the situation then with, uh, with the main ideas of the Frankfurt School. And now let's go to the last part, which is we've hopefully established what their main ideas are. And again, in some of the things I said, I tried to do a sympathetic reading of the Frankfurt School. So now the question is, is the demonization of the Frankfurt School, particularly by the right, legitimate? Is it correct? And here I would say no. Here you will find me supporting the Frankfurt School. And this is why. Let's find, let's see the main what are the main conspiracy and the main conspiratorial ideas about Frankfurt School? So the first is that, it was, is it a coincidence that everyone was a Jew? So A, not every part of the Frankfurt School is, has been a Jew. So for example, Habermas, who is, let's say, a later member, loosely affiliated, the truth is, is not a Jew. But yes, indeed, the founding significant members were Jews. But again, they were not practicing. So they, what contributed the worldview was not their, quote, Jewishness or whatever this, however they would put it. So, but I don't want to spend time now dismissing like the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, but I just had to say this. Something else that they have this, they were kind of this Marxist firebrands that want to destroy capitalism. Maybe they wanted to, not maybe, they actually they wanted to destroy society and to change society, but they were not Marxist. The Frankfurt School, in a way, was the defeat of Marxism. It was the dead end of Marxism. So it was a variant, so to speak, which was way less strong than the original, than the original uh, model. And again, I explained in the lecture why this is the case. They very, very strongly deviated from core elements of Marxism. And in a way, Marxism was never the same among circles where the Frankfurt School had an influence. Now, the big conspiracy, though, it was that it was this school with this very strong intellectual ties, which had the plan to expand itself to the other side of the Atlantic and destroy the American society. That's why they find themselves in Columbia University after the war. This has some holes, this idea. The first hole is that this school was way less organized as many people would think. So at some point, basically, Frankfurt School was Adorno, Horkheimer, and Marcuse. And among them, there were many differences. And among them, there were strong disagreements. A simple example is when Habermas, which was, let's say, the new wave of the Frankfurt School, his dissertation supervisors were Adorno and Horkheimer. And when Habermas submit his PhD thesis, they cannot even agree on the amount of correction and, and they are angry with each other. Habermas is angry with boys. says, okay, I'm leaving, I'm going to another university. So if this is like this new Bolshevik kind of conspiracy to take over the world, they didn't do a very good, they didn't do a very good uh, job. And particularly the plan to take over the US academia these people found themselves in the United States almost by coincidence. Like they didn't want to be there. It's, it's, that's why they, 
when Hitler rises to power, their first choice, some of the, most of them, is not to go to the United States. They go elsewhere in Europe, and then they find themselves in the U.S. Then you then you'll hear it said, Frankfurt School and cultural Marxism is about the long march through the institutions. You've heard this term, right? The long march through the institutions. Except that this doesn't come from Frankfurt School. This comes from Gramsci, which was another Marxist. Frankfurt School and Gramsci have very, very little in common, and they are not in the they are not in the same school, so to speak, if we talk about Marxism. And the other thing is that they launched the culture wars. They launched the culture wars. Can you give me any examples? Because I can give you counter examples. For example, when we have the student mobilization in 1968, students burst into the office of Pur Adorno, in, uh, who by then has returned to Germany. Adorno is horrified and he's calling the police. Like, I have, what are these people doing here? And he's terrified. There are some girls that saw, the, saw him their breasts because apparently that was a radical act to do. So he writes to Marcuse and says, what is this thing? And he tells, this can deteriorate to the new fascism. So Adorno is very, very uncomfortable with student radicalism. Now, Marcuse doesn't agree with Adorno, but you already see that, A, there is no agreement within the school, and B, it's not that, uh, that the main minds of Frankfurt is like, yes, now we see this conflict and you know, our plan is, is that. There is no plan. By the way, a very interesting last comment here on the conspiracy theories. The first conspiracy theory about Frankfurt School does not come from the right. The first conspiracy theory about the Frankfurt School comes from the left, from a very weird Trotskyist group that claims that Frankfurt School is a conspiracy by CIA to weaken Marxism, to weaken the left. And they have even a, how it's called, the burning uh, gun, uh, this, this term that they use in court, that uh, Marcuse was working for the CIA, which is partly true. He wasn't working exactly for the CIA, but during the Second World War, he was, he was working in a bureau in terms of analyzing information that comes from Germany because he was German and because it made sense in the Second World War. So where does all, all this leave us? On the one hand, on the one hand, we have to be very, very critical. First, we need to understand the ideas of the Frankfurt School and be critical when we have to be critical. But to do so, we have to leave aside all the BS about this long march through the institutions and how they have destroyed the West. And actually, we should say one more thing. There is something which is even stronger than a conspiracy, and this is the power of bad ideas. Look behind every bad idea of the Frankfurt School, you will find a bad philosopher, often a bad German philosopher, but not only a German philosopher. Our friend mentioned Rousseau. Hegel is there. Uh, Marx is there. Kant is there. So if you don't like the Frankfurt School, try and find where these ideas come from and why these ideas are wrong, dear conservatives. Because quite often, you will see that people from the right have criticisms that very much bring to mind Frankfurt School. Now, mostly on the far right, I should say, because I need to be fair here. So you could play a pub quiz game or a drinking game with your friends, which could be, who said it, Julius Evola, 
or the Frankfurt School. So this elitism, this kind of anti-modernist passion that is shared by parts of the reactionary right is shared also by Frankfurt School. And at the end of the day, Frankfurt School is a very elitist movement, is a movement of the elites horrified rightly by the horrors of the 20th century, but also horrified by the success of the industrial society and by the fact that the working class now has undreamt of material prosperity. And for these elitists, this is something which is not to be celebrated. Okay, this was way longer than I expected. Uh, I hope you got value out of it. I hope first, again, that you understood what the Frankfurt School is, and then be where is the truth and where does the myth begin when it comes to their ideas and what has been their effect. They have been influential. They have been influential to almost every other movement that came after, for example, critical race theory, uh, the social movements. But more on that, on the relevant module on the Ayn Rand University, the road to critical race theory. So go to the website uh, of the Ayn Rand University. I, I don't think there's a website yet, but check out the Objectivist Academic Center and you can find more information. Okay, no clubhouse today because uh, A, I was speaking for 45 minutes, I'm going to lose my voice. B, I have to be somewhere else, but I very much appreciate uh, your super chats and I very much appreciate it if you stayed for 45 minutes listening to this presentation. Thank you very much. All the best. Bye-bye.